Ten years since the Fukushima nuclear accident. Obviously, there was a lot of concern initially for UK citizens living in Japan, and then, of course, of the wider spread of radioactive material. Life-saving advice for beachgoers. About half of those that drown every year, tragically, had never any intention of getting wet. And it's knowing what to do if you end up in the water yourself. And what we've learned from the UK's wettest day on record. These kind of events may happen as frequently as every 30 years. It's Friday the 12th of March and you're listening to Weather Snap from the Met Office. Hello, I'm Claire Nazir and this is Weather Snap, an insider's guide to the week's weather brought to you direct from a Met Office HQ. Ten years ago, the Great East Japan earthquake triggered a tsunami that inundated the east coast of Japan, causing catastrophic damage to the nuclear power plant at Fukushima Daiichi. Loss of power and cooling to the reactors resulted in large amounts of radioactive material being released into the atmosphere. Susan Ledbetter is a senior scientist specialising in atmospheric dispersion here at the Met Office. She was part of the team tasked with forecasting the track and ultimate destination of radionuclides. We heard about the nuclear accident at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant very shortly after it occurred. Obviously there was a lot of concern initially for UK citizens living in Japan and then of course of the wider spread of radioactive material. Could you explain to me the upper wind patterns in that region of the world and why it would affect the UK? Typically, Japan sits slightly further south than we do, but not a huge amount. So typically the winds in that area blow from the west to the east. So the material typically is carried out across the Pacific Ocean, across North America towards Europe. So you were working with UK government. What did your models suggest for the local area of Fukushima? So the Fukushima accident actually progressed over a period of about a month. So the patterns varied from day to day and on some days the material would be carried out over the Pacific Ocean and on other days there were much more local concerns about the material being carried across Japan and particularly towards Tokyo. And obviously this has a health threat associated with it. So I presume the scientists were hoping that the wind direction would take it out into the mid-ocean However, that wasn't the case, was it? That's correct. So when material disperses in the atmosphere, the further you go from the source of the material, the more spread out it is and and therefore the lower the risks. You can imagine that if the material gets carried across the Pacific Ocean by the time it reaches the American coast, it's spread out much more and is likely to be a much lower risk. Um, Whereas if it's going out across Japan, it's not travelled very far and so it's likely to be a higher risk. Particularly in the middle of March, there were days when material was carried across Japan and it combined actually with rainfall at the time to be deposited in Japan. Um, The Japanese have since surveyed the area and you can see the impact of those days when the material was deposited on the ground in Japan. Impacts due to damage to vegetation? No, it doesn't appear as damage. You can only see it if you were to go out, say, with a Geiger counter and look for radiation, but you wouldn't see damage to plants from that amount of radiation. Could you explain where the radionuclides ended up on a broader scale? Ever since the Chernobyl accident, the globe has been covered with detectors for detecting actually low levels of radionuclides that don't pose a hazard to human health at all, but they actually enable us to see where that material has travelled. And so detections were made uh, across America and then uh, subsequently there have been detections of very small amounts of radionuclides in Europe. 
So is rainfall a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to obviously removing the radionuclides from the atmosphere, but they have impacts on the land? If we were looking at volcanic ash, it's a one way story is that it's very good. It removes the volcanic ash from the atmosphere for radioactive material. When we remove the radioactive material from the atmosphere, obviously you can no longer breathe it in, but then it's deposited on the ground. And as we know from Chernobyl, that material remains for years and can pose an additional hazard over that time. Dr. Susan Ledbetter. On the 3rd of October last year, the UK experienced its wettest day since records began in 1831. The event made headlines with the total volume of water being compared to that of Loch Ness, which, if you didn't know, holds roughly seven and a half cubic kilometres of water, which interestingly is the same capacity as the rest of the lakes of England and Wales combined. Since then, Met Office climate scientists have been analysing data to establish the likelihood of similar events happening in the future. One of those scientists is Nikos Christidis. I work on attribution of climate change. We put a lot of focus on temperature changes and warming in recent decades, but we also begin to see changes in rainfall as well in the UK. And we've done quite a few studies that looked at increasing likelihood of extreme rainfall events. But never before did we look at the rainfall that was received in a single day. So with the attribution studies, could you explain the mechanism and why therefore we can come to some conclusions about one particular date? We rely very much on climate models. So we have simulations of the climate with and without the effect of human influence. Of course, we do use observations a lot as well. We need to make sure that our models are fit for purpose. I remember this day, the 3rd of October 2020, Mm. because it was the day after Storm Alex, which was a particularly wet day. But I remember looking at the radar and thinking, Mm. well, where's the country gone? Because you could only just see the rain. What did you conclude from this attribution study? So we've concluded that the chances, the likelihood of these kind of events is increasing because of human influence on the climate. We estimate that without human influence, these kind of events as the one we saw on the 3rd of October would happen once in 300 years or once every few centuries, whereas now it happens about once every 100 years. And going forward under a medium emission scenario, if we go to the end of the century, these kind of events may happen as frequently as every 30 years. So we're accumulating evidence here. And as you said, this is the first time you've done it for one particular day rather than an event which has happened over two, three, four days or even a week. Nikos Christidis, thank you very much. Thank you. This week, Britain's coastlines have taken a battering as 70 mile an hour winds brought huge waves crashing down. These conditions create many hazards, not just for those at sea, but also to those close to the shore. To learn more about the risks, I spoke to Gareth Morrison, Head of Water Safety at RNLI. 
the gusty conditions and the spray and the spectacle of waves tends to draw people in. And sometimes it draws people in just a little bit too closely and people get themselves in the difficulty. So this is not your yachts people, it's not your commercial fishermen, it's you and I who are going for a walk that might find ourselves unexpectedly in difficulty. The information that you put out is really important. In fact, you have released um, a press release this week talking about water safety and in particular people stepping outside. And, you know, we're easing out of lockdown in the next few months. What advice would you give to those? I mean, obviously check the forecast, but what do you um, advise? Yeah, indeed. I mean, the coastline is beautiful and we're all drawn to it naturally the moment the sun comes out or where there's an opportunity for some fresh air as well. And we have a bit of a, a tagline of, of respect the water. And actually, it's about respecting the water and, and everything you do. And, you know, it, it's, it's simple things. It's like taking a bit of self-responsibility and looking after you and your family, looking after little ones if they're running close to the water's edge, keeping your dog on a lead if you're near a bit of a cliff or a drop. And there's a really simple message. And, and sometimes people are hesitant to dial 999 if they ever see an incident or even if they're not sure and the message from the RNLI is actually if you're in any doubt whatsoever please do dial 999 straight away and get that message into the Coast Guard talk it through with them is it an incident or not and that may just save vital minutes to get a lifeboat or even a lifeguard on their way you know about half of those that drown every year tragically had never any intention of getting wet and it's knowing what to do if you end up in the water yourself unexpectedly and the rnli has a float to live campaign which essentially says if you accidentally fall into the water unexpectedly it's to resist that initial urge to thrash around to scream for help to swim aggressively but it's actually to try and relax yourself to to lie back on your back in like a starfish shape in the water and float give yourself 30 or 60 seconds for your breathing to calm down for your heart rate to calm down and then decide what is my next step is it to try and swim ashore is it to call for help or or what is it Let's just backtrack now to how you roll out a deployment if something happens. So obviously the Met Office issues warnings. We can see days in advance if there's a storm coming. And that early information, I presume, is vital to planning where your lifeguards and where your boats will be. And if you need more staffing. Yeah, indeed. So at the moment, the RNLI has a network of 238 lifeboat stations around the UK and Ireland, um, all manned by volunteers, which is in itself pretty impressive. And those 238 lifeboat stations are on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Gareth Morrison, thank you very much. Winds will remain a feature of our weather into the weekend, but hopefully less severe than of late. With the details, here's Alex Deacon. Our atmosphere remains highly charged this weekend and with the blusterous weather continuing, that means large waves are also likely to continue. So please heed that RNLI advice. So yes, it's going to stay windy this weekend. So there'll be some sunshine, but there will be a whole raft of showers. Particularly windy on Friday night across England and Wales. A good chance you may get woken up as the showers rattle the windows. And those showers mostly of rain, but there will be some snow over the Pennines and over the hills across Scotland as well. So it could be a covering of 
further snow in places here. It'll also be cold across northern Scotland because the winds will ease a little bit here to allow temperature to drop well below freezing. Elsewhere, though, most places staying above freezing with that gusty wind, which will be uh, bringing a chill to proceedings throughout Saturday and will also continue to bring showers. Nowhere immune from the showers, but parts of northeast Scotland, southeast England uh, will be favoured for the longest of the sunny spells. Showers that will never be too far away, zipping through on that brisk wind. Still some winteriness in them over the hills of northern England and Scotland. Some hail showers certainly on the cards as well. Temperature 7 to 10 Celsius, but feeling colder with that gusty wind. Now, the wind will ease a little bit as we go through Saturday, and more particularly on Sunday. Still a breezy day on Sunday, but for many a dry and perhaps a bright start. Uh, through the day, we'll see the cloud thickening and further outbreaks of showery rain drift from northwest to southeast. So nowhere again immune from the showery rain on Sunday afternoon, uh, but at least it should be a drier start. And the winds will continue to ease through Sunday as high pressure starts to head in. And that promises a big change into next week with high pressure returning, bringing a lot more drier weather and lighter winds across the UK. Thanks, Alex. Now here's Martin Bowles with last week's highs and lows. Here are the weather extremes, observed between Monday the 1st of March and Sunday the 7th of March, officially the first week of meteorological spring. The weather started off quite spring-like, notably in North Wales for St David's Day on Monday. The highest UK temperature of the week was 14.9 Celsius at Port Maddock in Gwynedd. That part of Wales also had the most sunshine. Just down the road at the far end of the Llyn Peninsula, Aberdaran recorded 10.5 hours. Some nights in the north would have belonged better in winter, especially in the Scottish Highlands and the Grampians. The coldest value was minus 8.5 Celsius at Braemar in Aberdeenshire during the early hours of Saturday morning. It was a fairly dry week for most of us, although there was rain for some on Wednesday and Thursday. Unusually for the UK, the highest rainfall was recorded in the southeast. Bedford had 15.4mm on Thursday the 4th. Thanks Martin. That's it for Weathersnap. I'm Claire Nazir and editor was Adrian Holloway. Weathersnap is a podcast by the UK Met Office.